0: You're tuning into a Patreon-exclusive segment of Oats for Breakfast. My name's Brent. My name's Laura. We're going to continue our discussion we were having with Adam King about labour standards.
1: This time the discussion will go into a more free-ranging discussion of employment standards and bring in a few anecdotes.
0: We're also going to be talking about labour standards around the world in other advanced capitalist countries like Sweden and Australia. Welcome back to Oats for Breakfast, Adam. Great, thanks for having me. I've worked for temp agencies. I don't know if you guys have. Have you mm. worked for a temp agencies? No, Laura? but I've, I've read about the cases horrific. where they have to go to the yeah. board, though. Yeah. You'd go down to the local, like a Deco or Randstad, or there's a bunch of them. There's a lot of them, and uh, yeah, they'd basically find you a job almost the next day. Uh, the jobs that they would find you, uh, they're called temp jobs were pretty awful. When you get in there, they give you like a 30-minute wemyss test in which you can basically just run it as many times as you want and it's fill in the blanks. So you, that's your mm-hmm. health and safety. Wow. And they also hand it, I remember they would hand me, every place would hand me a photocopied copy of... The Ontario, what's the main legislation? The Employment Standards. Yeah, Act. they would hand me just a copy of the Employment Standards Act and be like, "Here, this is with like the contract to sign."
2: Yeah, that's yeah. kind of their legal obligation, and that's yeah. About it. yeah.
0: And when you would go on these these work sites, there's be like absolutely no oversight, and actually, you're forced into really dangerous positions because if you don't appease the the client, the boss. Uh, essentially you can't find work like they'll tell your ADECO or RANSTAT or whatever they'll come speak to them and then ADECO or RANSTAT will like never call you again <laughs> or like it'll be a while they'll sort of make you like sweat it out
2: yeah I mean the tem- especially in terms of temporary help agencies and these sort of complex structures of employment where the it's not clear exactly sometimes who the employer is or it's not it's not clear who's responsible for enforcing rights like in that situation when a when a contractor or contract firm is supplying labor to a third party it's difficult to enforce the law in a lot of circumstances
1: it's specifically used as a mechanism to avoid union obligations and generally employment standards like you already mentioned Mm -hmm. yeah yeah
2: yeah, absolutely. It's, it's an avoidance mechanism. That's, that's what it's supposed to do. Um, and so, you know, one way of improving that is making both, uh, having basically what's called joint and several liability, meaning that the liability is spread across all of those who are party to the relationship, party to the employment relationship. Um, and so, I mentioned that in the article about Sanders, that it's absolutely necessary in the U.S. and stronger measures are necessary in Canada as well.
0: But also like in terms of the Employment Standards Act, so you can have these formal rights, but especially in that position when you're scraping by day to day to try to accumulate a a weekly paycheck, which is very difficult to do, you're coming up against very strong market forces that sort of undermine any chance you have about pressing for any sort of employment standards. And whenever you would bring it up to an employer in that context, they would just drop you. So I I remember going in there asking, like, I don't want to work like mindless stuff. Like I wasn't that bad. Like, I think I had some money and, you know, I was like a, a suburban kid living at home. So, you know, I wasn't that pressed all the time but I was like just don't give me something very mindless cuz I couldn't stand going to these jobs in which you're putting handles on buckets for like 12 hours. I just like couldn't do it, wouldn't be worth the money. Some of the jobs wouldn't be that bad. You they'd have variation. So one was like a maintenance at like a, a logistics firm up in Milton. So I'd drive up there and I would do different things around the 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 factory. Like I would repair buggies, I would change batteries, I would fix, um, different stuff. And just that variation in what you're doing was key. It was the jobs in which you have a 12 hour continental shift doing the same thing over and over again. That for me, I couldn't personally stand. And a lot of people were forced to work those jobs. Those were the most available jobs. If you want a job like that, you, anyone could get it. But it was just like, if you don't accept that job, then they punish you. So once I went and I said, this is exactly what I said I didn't want to do. So I left at lunch at that place with the employer like screaming at me like so angry like so indignant that this temp is leaving yeah and i'm just like f you buddy like <laughs> i don't yeah. care and they called um a deco complained and then i didn't hear from a deco for like three weeks you know wow. i think i found another job in between there but then they called me back and they're like hey uh are you ready to work now? And I'm like, no, because I got another job. So screw off, a deco. But yeah, like these are the sort of dynamics. So in that context, it's like, I don't know if employment standards are enough to combat the market forces that workers are up against. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I was going to say these things are all, it's so obviously purposeful that they let you, like you said, you let they let you sweat it out. And when I hear them passing you the employment standards for the workplace, I hear that as, saying this is your responsibility not our responsibility for on one hand and on the other hand if they do get some sort of inspection from the ministry they can that's one piece of evidence they can say in their favor as well we hand them all the standards act and we tell them to familiarize themselves, right. themselves with it so right. if they, something happens yeah
2: they do the basic minimum that's required mm-hmm. by law i mean there's a couple of like interesting things that are going on sort of in that story like on the one hand, it's a good indication of to the extent to which so many industries are just dependent on this type of employment model. Like, I mean, you mentioned sort of like market forces, but it's a kind of like a, it's a policy decision also Mm -hmm. to have workplaces structured in this way or to have whole segments of the economy that only function because of highly precarious, insecure, low wage labor. I mean, that's a, that's a, structural government decision yeah. in order to pursue an industrial policy that's dependent on insecurity.
0: And what, and this goes back to the full employment policy we are talking about before when under a full employment policy, the idea is to have good jobs with good working conditions. That's the goal of macroeconomic policy. Now it's almost just, just to retain investment. So why are we really, what are the point is of retaining the investment of these like, low skill low wage poor working condition companies if they can't even provide good jobs it's like for it's is it for like the middle layer that always works in these places the administrative jobs you know what i mean or is it just for having that like uh, contributing to gdp or something like that you know just the idea of just maintaining uh, that sort of investment in the economy at all costs, you know?
2: Yeah, it's it's really interesting to consider, like, you know, when Ford came in and this whole idea of, like, the province is open for business. It's like, what kinds of businesses is it open for? I mean, the point of rolling back employment standards legislation and other types of regulations that protect workers is to kind of pursue a low-wage growth strategy, right? Right. I mean, instead of having a, you know, something that's more committed to like full employment and um, trying to move capital investment basically up the value-added chain and have better jobs produced through a kind of like targeted industrial policy with that as the aim, they instead gear their regulation towards protecting these bottom feeder employers basically, Mm -hmm. including uh, temporary help agencies. Another interesting aspect of that is that, I mean, we were talking in the last segment about this compliance-based approach to regulating employment standards, where it's like, assume that employers are ignorant, and the way that you find out, or if you're the Ministry of Labor, the way that you find out about employment standards violations is when workers complain. I mean, there's an instance, temporary help agencies, where proactive inspections are so important, and it's not as though the Ministry is ignorant of Violations being rampant in those types of employment relationships, they know. I mean, an effective enforcement strategy would prioritize proactively investigating those types of industries. Right. Just like the Ministry of Health or whoever's responsible for regulating, like hygiene in restaurants, inspects the restaurants to ensure that they comply with the law. I mean, we should treat labor in the same way. Employers know that they could be randomly investigated, or mm-hmm. they should know. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the other aspect of that is that even when they do proactively investigate what they call high-risk employers, that is, employers that are likely to violate the law, they only have a a list of, I I think it's 10 or 11 core standards, what they call core standards, that they actually pay attention to when they go into the workplace. So, it's not as though they go in there with, like, the whole act in hand and make sure that they're complying with all provisions. They go in with what they think are the most important provisions and kind of do like a sweep of the workplace. So they don't often detect the full extent of violations even in these high-risk sectors that when they do proactively investigate, which is seldom anyways.
1: Yeah, there was a really, I think it was the Star ran uh, some really interesting investigative oh, right, reporting yeah. last year where they, after um, some somebody died in, I believe, that industrial bakery, right? Yeah. So pretty strong evidence that the status quo of inspections wasn't good enough and now it's going to be even thinner
2: Mm -hmm, absolutely i mean ford has made substantial cuts and and dangerous cuts i mean it's not hyperbolic to say that the cuts that he's made put workers lives at risk
0: yeah oh yeah for sure and it's like, I think when people hear temporary employment, they think, oh, this is only like one or two people that are maybe working in these factories and these plants. But literally some of them that I would go to um, were entirely temp agencies except for the management. So um, a clothing company um, in which like at that time I was like wearing their clothes would be entirely run by uh, temporary employment Uh by temp agency workers who could be fired almost instantly. Yeah. So I think on the left, we need to uh, pay much more attention to not just supporting unionized workers, you know, but also like looking much more at going after uh, these temp agencies and improving employment standards could be, I, I don't know. What are some mechanisms in which you can, can, can do that, Adam? Do you know of any, even from a comparative perspective?
2: In a certain sense, it's not that much different than thinking about workers in unionized workplaces. I mean, in the sense that people need to be organized around the issues and pushing for change. To the degree that you're not able to unionize workers in these precarious situations, then you need a strong enforcement regime. And you need stronger laws on the books. Like, employers need to be afraid. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, you need a model that actually deters them from breaking the law you know in combination with like general policies that are geared towards creating good employment in the first place not a bunch of industries that are just dependent on this highly flexibilized labor um so you know it's a tall order to to think about what that involves i suppose in terms of organizing but you know I, we've seen some of it with the fight for 15 and workers action centers and similar sort of non-traditional if you like forms of worker organizing that's not Geared toward you know traditional forms of unionization, and you should say that unions have also been involved in this right, and labor yeah. councils. I mean, yeah. it's not as though they haven't been also trying to do things with this. We just have to do a lot more. Mm-hmm.
1: Just in case anyone out there doesn't know, the fight for fifteen was and still is um, a grassroots organization um, advocating for fair wages in the province. Was it grassroots? Is that fair to say? Kind of hate the word grassroots.
2: I mean, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and also sort of built on. You know, a more general movement across North America, really, Mm -hmm. around having a fifteen dollars minimum wage, which had success—you know, some success in Ontario getting to fourteen, supposed to be fifteen—and also in in certain parts of the United States, like both the state of California and New York have, and I I believe Illinois as well, have plans in place to get to fifteen dollars over different timelines.
0: I think also a more a greater sectoral organization of the labor movement and of unions could also address some of these issues when unions are just focused at the sort of very decentralized firm level where they're just bargaining with one employer. The incentive is, is there not to really worry about anybody outside of that. And I wonder also if expanding that uh, sphere of bargaining, you'll start to develop sort of legal relationships in which what is bargain for unionized workers can be transferred to more casual sectors Do you know what i mean i'm just kind of like mm-hmm. vaguely yeah trying to think this through right now and, and like how we um i don't want to like because i think there is a kind of narrative on the left where um like i was saying before it's like we just need to focus on unions and rebuilding that movement but then all of this stuff is is left to the side and then also like I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. There's a sense in which it's always going to be hard to unionize everyone in the economy and um, in the labor market and people, especially like new immigrants and stuff might be left out of that. So you want to have a more
2: comprehensive
0: thing that does both at the same time. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. And I mean, we don't have a strong history with sectoral forms of unionization or regulation in Canada, unfortunately, and, in fact, it's kind of like the reverse in terms of employment standards, what usually happens when you sort of have um, sectoral based divisions from the core standards is usually what that means is you have exemptions that make it worse. Like, so, for example, in in the trucking industry, like the hours of work regulations don't apply. They have their own set. They have an exempt set that's regulated under the highway acts. And, you know, allows them to work substantially more hours than somebody who's just regulated under the regular employment standards working mm. time. So, I mean, we kind of have a, a negative uh, experience with sectoral exemptions and special rules. But I'm definitely of the opinion that a move towards sectoral bargaining is absolutely necessary just because of the extent of changes in the economy since the mid-80s especially. We need to move to a system where it's not focused on the workplace as the site of bargaining and is better able to capture those workers that are left behind by the model of unionization that we have now. So that's
0: interesting. That So you're saying in the trucking sector you do have this sort of Sectoral differentiation, but it's entirely in favor of employers because there is no corresponding union representation at that level. That you could maybe push back to that?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's basically the way it works, not only in trucking, but in all kinds of sectors. That's interesting. So the doctors,
1: I'm, lawyers.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it happens at the high end of the labor market yeah. and at the low end, but essentially it's what you have is that the employment standards is kind of like the core piece of legislation, and then various interest groups, usually employer groups, advocate for certain special rules or exemptions so the ontario employment standards act is just like just full of it's just a patchwork of of special rules like the ministry of labor even maintains a tool on its website like a special rules tool that you can go on and sort of like get you know punch in your industry and then find out what rules apply to you that are different from the core standards in the act and virtually All of that is to the advantage of employers, like special rules and exemptions are virtually never Mm. beneficial to workers under those situations. Yeah. And and employers are
0: organized, definitely, at the sectoral level from what I've I've Mm -hmm. also seen. Like Canada doesn't have, and maybe this can get into the comparative aspect, um, like those sort of general peak associations are very effective ones anyway um for employers or for unions like effective ones like we have like what's the main national the canadian labor congress yeah um which is a peak associate i'm doing the what do you call scare quotes scare quotes um but doesn't really has no ability to sort of control its different members and it's not
2: integrated no and it's not a bargaining it's not a bargaining unit Yeah.
0: yeah um But yeah, employers definitely are organized at the sectoral level and are proactively lobbying provincial and federal governments over these issues. Mm -hmm. Um, So, in a sense, that doesn't surprise me that you do get this one-sided regulation. And it's almost like the system's gamed against labor unless you have those more meso and macro forms of uh, bargaining going on.
1: Yeah, uh, a move to sectoral-based collective bargaining law is pretty necessary. Those mechanisms need to be created at the provincial and federal levels. The another proposal that you'll see around is to legislate like a rather than a thin conception of freedom of association, like a thicker conception of freedom of association. So right now, there's been a couple Supreme Court decisions that constitutionalize freedom of association as um, a worker's right essentially. So that's how you get the right to strike being, Mm-hmm. A constitutional issue or the right to collective bargaining, right to a collective bargaining process become constitutionalized. But there's nothing stopping uh, any federal or provincial government from legislating those rights into the acts so as to um, equalize the differentiation between firm power and worker mm-hmm. bargaining power.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
1: it takes a bunch of these different ingredients to yeah. to revive,
0: and it's totally uh, it's not in our political culture to, to also think this way. You know, it's hard right. to, to make. I th- like the big comparator would be like Sweden, where you do have these peak associations with. Uh, I forget what the employers' associations called, um, but the LO, mm-hmm. and that's some Swedish.
2: Basically, I term. just always say labor organization.
0: Yeah, works okay. for me in English. Is that how it, what it translates to? I honestly don't know, (laughs) but that's the major peak association in Sweden. And what they do in Sweden is they get together at a sort of national level and they bargain wages for a whole series of different industries. Um, and then you can also have more sectoral forms of associations where you're just bargaining for a certain sector. And that's more like Germany, right? Where like the steel industry or uh, like, I think it's usually the steel industry, um, Bargains a certain set of standards, and then there you have pattern bargaining where that's then spread across the different specters. Is that, is that right? When, when
2: I yeah, started? I mean, the distinction between Sweden and, and Germany is that the Swedish model is much more encompassing, right? Uh, whereas the, the German model kind of creates a pretty stark dual market mm-hmm. in the sense that the people who have access to the sectoral collective bargaining have it a lot better than people who don't. Um, people get left out of it. Uh, In the Swedish model, it's more encompassing, like, and and in terms of wages and standards, like, they don't have a minimum wage, for example. It's all, it's various sectoral minimums that are bargained and then extended across workplaces. But, you know, I mean, the neoliberal push has also undermined that system somewhat Mm -hmm. there as well. I mean, they've moved away in some sectors from sectoral bargaining at the behest of employers associations who want more flexibility in the employment relationship. And you know, to the extent that we did have experience with sectoral bargaining in North America, which was largely the masters or the master agreements between um, the auto workers, for example, and and car manufacturers, or in steel, I mean, they've abandoned those long ago as well. So, I mean, to say that we should have sectoral bargaining, I think, is right, but it's also easier said than done. yeah, Yeah, we should recognize how tall an order that really is
1: yeah where is it only the artists sectoral bargaining that we have federally do you know about this adam the yeah we artists
2: have the status of the artist status act. of the artist thank you yeah yeah i don't know all the details of the act but essentially yeah they have a kind of and i'm not it's not entirely like it doesn't unionize them for example it just provides right. them with a mechanism to like set prices more right. or less oh yeah. interesting
0: yeah um
2: So these these
0: comparisons, these European comparisons might not be the greatest, but um, I think we can also look to a bit closer to home in a sense, in a sense of being really far off from home (laughs) in Australia, which is kind of like the perfect bizarro Canada in a sense that it's in the south. I'm gonna stop talking.
2: No, I think you're onto something. (laughs) I totally, yeah, I know where you're going.
0: (laughs) But um, it's very similar in a lot of ways, it is, uh, a big part of its economy is resource-based. Canada has a bit more manufacturing. It's a federal country. Uh, it comes from that parliamentary, British parliamentary tradition, the Westminster tradition. A lot of the same institutions in that sense. a bit more
2: influence from uh, the Americans, but... Also a, a liberal market economy. In liberal the sort of market like, economy. In the welfare state sense as well. Yeah. Right?
0: So a distinction between a liberal market economy and a coordinated market economy is what is made in comparative political economy uh, often. And the idea is that a liberal market economy relies much more on market mechanisms and and um, signals to coordinate economic activity. Whereas a coordinated market economy, as in German and S- Germany and Sweden, there's much more extra market organizations and institutions that would coordinate sort of employers around things like training, Mm -hmm. around things like um, wages as well.
2: Yeah. And it also speaks to the degree to which uh, what they refer to in the literature as people's labor being decommodified. That is the extent to which a worker is dependent on their wages or the extent to which there are welfare state provisions in place to make you less dependent, like the ability to take paid leaves or access to... um, you know, state-funded training or education, health, things like that?
0: So, Australia is, I think, in a lot of ways, a liberal market economy in in that there's not a lot of coordination, I think, among employers over, like, training. But they do have a system in which they have much stronger labor standards. Mm -hmm. And they do have a strong system of minimum wages. So, to me, Australia, in a way, is... And there's, you know, Australia is also a very neoliberal country, we shouldn't glorify it too much, but it is an example of a liberal market economy in which you sort of have like this whack of labor consciousness and labor power going back to the 19th century, uh, where the labor Part- the Australian Labor Party was the first recognized labor party, I think, in the world, and um, has since been a very strong player, even when it was not in power it was a strong influence over government policy in this sort of two-party system. So they have developed what's called like an award system. Um, I don't know, Adam, like maybe if you could speak to that a little bit and like how that might relate to Canada, what lessons could we draw from Australia maybe?
2: Mm -hmm. I mean, Australia has a kind of, I mean, they are a federal system, but they also have a bit more central regulation than, than we do. Um, in the sense that our federal government just has jurisdiction over its federal jurisdiction and not over the provinces. What it legislated has, it doesn't really impact the provinces that much. But in the case of Australia, they have this sort of essentially what's a tiered system where they have sectoral bargaining and, and forms of regulation. So, they have collective agreements sort of at the, you know, sort of upper echelon, the top tier, and then they have this system of rewards or awards, sorry, underneath it which effectively function as like a form of sectoral regulation. Mm-hmm. And then there are boards that labor representatives and employer representatives sit on, and there's a kind of loose bargaining that happens and then applies to workplaces in that, in that sector. And then underneath it, a kind of like looser system of regulations that provides like what we would think of as, of as traditional minimum employment standards. So, it's pretty encompassing in terms of the percentage of workplaces that are covered by some type of either award or collective bargaining agreement. So it provides a pretty extensive set of regulations for workers. Um, it's actually pretty complex when you like try and figure mm-hmm. all this out. Like, do I have an award, a collective agreement? Like what exactly is going on in my workplace? But they actually have a pretty good website too. the fair work, uh, ombudsman. Yeah. Yeah. yeah F O W. So they or sorry. F W O. um, yeah, they sort of maintain pretty up-to-date information about this kind of stuff, but yeah, it's, you know, it offers some lessons about progressive, you know, reforms that could be moved towards in a kind of an economy that's similar to ours. I mean, one one example of a reform that is fairly recent there that I think is pretty good is that they have this thing called casual loading, which essentially if an employer Classifies you as non, non uh, permanent, non full time if you're in a casual status. They have to pay a premium on your wage. So they pay an additional 25% basically for the inconvenience of you not having security. And it functions as a, as a disincentive for employers to casualize workers. Mm. So that would be pretty good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um. So I think also the Australian case maybe speaks to a fear on the left around labor standards um, that you, I don't, well, you hear it, but that they are depoliticizing in Mm -hmm. which they can sort of demobilize the labor movement. And you kind of see this when talking to people and like even talking to, you know, uh, some of my students, for example, they're like unions were okay back when we needed them back in the old days. But now all you need is just strong labor law and things like that. And then they kind of just like, and we don't really need unions anymore. And it's almost like the liberals have been like, yeah, we agree with you, (laughs) first year student. And that's what we're going to do, right? Yeah. But the Australia case, that was the idea behind the Australian arbitration case. In the 19th century, you had all these industrial disputes coinciding with the rise of the Labor Party. And the courts responded by sort of instituting uh, legal arbitration, ma- mandatory legal arbitration for wages to sort of to quell industrial unrest, right? But actually, over the years, it's it didn't quite work out that well. And there were still quite a few. Uh, the original legislation banned strikes. So they said, we're going to do this, but you can't strike anymore. Um, that got overpeeled. Uh, overpeeled? <laughs>
1: Over, I say overturned, <laughs>
0: <laughs> overturned, over appealed. I don't know. <laughs> overturned in the 1930s, and then there was a lot of industrial disputes in the post-war era. So, it and and knowing a little bit about Australia now, there still does seem to be quite an awareness of these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been like just following because um, my research compares Canada and Australia. Following like australian facebook groups and stuff like labor union and there does seem to be a lot more consciousness like around uh labor issues in australia like Mm -hmm. there was recently an issue with like the penalty rates which is like the rates they pay for things like um casualized like employers have to pay penalties for non-standard forms of employment including um casual labor and also like working on Sundays they still have that yeah yeah. and people like lost their minds when they try to change that and they had to repeal Mm -hmm. so there still is very much a culture of fair work and so you know I think it also speaks to the case in which you can have this labor standards in tandem with a strong
2: union movement do you know what I mean right yeah There's a strange kind of chicken and egg argument that goes on sometimes on the left about like, well, we need these policy changes, but the only way you're going to get policy changes is if people are organized, but the policy changes would make it easier for people to organize. So, I mean, you're having this debate right now. Welcome to the socialist project. Yeah. (laughs) You're having (laughs) this debate right now in the US because people are really excited, for example, about the teacher strikes. And so you have, you know... People writing about, like, the need to rebuild a kind of, like, militant layer in the labor movement. And while that's, like, hugely important, it it ventures on being kind of voluntarist sometimes. And that, Mm -hmm. like, all we really need to do is organize. If we were just better organized, then we could really make headway. But it's like, even if you were, I mean, what, you get back to the third of workers being unionized that you had at the peak in the 1960s? Right. Then what about the other... You know, what about the rest of the workers?
1: It's also like worth noting that the way that our model has gone down in Canada is that while there's lots and lots of protections for forming a union and staying in one, there's not as much protection for the right to strike in the sense of the, at least on on the Ontario level, Mm -hmm. um, the code Tries to do everything to avoid a Absolutely. strike, Go right? On. Yeah. So there are only pr- very, very narrow circumstances in which you can legally strike. Legally and if strike. there is a, and if there is an illegal strike, it'll probably get shut down. And the quick. state,
0: more and more, we saw this with the York strike and with uh, the college instructor strike. They'll step
2: in and mm-hmm. yeah, and, and for and and have back to work legislation. Yeah. yeah and the recourse it, to back to work legislation has been, uh, yeah. you know, intense. Um, yeah. I mean, and also like. I mean, people have been writing on this for a while. I mean, like, it could make perfectly good sense to remove uh, the no-strike clause during collective agreements. Like, you were talking before about um, arbitration. And I mean, the use of arbitration, I mean, when studied, is systematically (laughs) favors employers. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if, I mean, and the notion behind arbitration is sometimes referred to as interest arbitration, meaning that. If there's an issue that arises during the life of a collective agreement that is not contained within the collective agreement, then you automatically go to arbitration because it's about the interests of the two parties and it's not spelled out in the collective agreement. So, the, the legal channel is arbitration. But why? I mean, why isn't, the, why isn't it, you know, the worker's right to strike over that issue if it's not contained in the collective agreement? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that makes perfect sense, really, from a worker's perspective.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, Adam – there's this argument that you'll hear sometimes from some people on the left, which is that uh, rather than trying to wholesale shoot for union organization, um, you should prioritize just certain sectors. Um, could you speak to that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I know, I know what you're referring to, that there are like strategic industries. I mean, this argument's pretty identified with Kim Moody. You organize logistics, public sector, transportation. That's essentially right. right? And like. By unionizing, key, why those sectors? Because they happen to be key sectors. Oh, are okay. like, With the
0: most leverage, I guess. You know? Yeah, like okay. because
2: of just-in-time production, because of like where industries are growing, the the sort of st- the strategic value that they have in terms of the coordination of the entire economy. The argument is that if you organize these strategic industries, you'll kind of have a spillover effect. It's similar to the argument that you know organizing the strategic industries of the 20th century, like auto, steel, mining, and so on, you know, you could argue it did have a positive impact on other industries by sort of like raising the bar overall for for workers. Um, So there is something to that, but, you know, I also think that it, in a certain sense, tends to romanticize the Fordist era of unionization and neglect the degree to which it did have all of these gendered and racialized exclusions. And we can't get around the fact that it had those things. And that even if we put those things aside and just think about it in terms of class, it had real problems for creating a unified working class too. You had a bunch of workers who had access to collective bargaining and then a bunch of people who were systematically shut out. And that's not the basis for creating a united working class either. So I don't think that, you know, certainly it makes sense to organize in strategic sectors, but it doesn't um, negate the need to do something substantial, especially in terms of employment standards for workers who are vulnerable and in low wage service sector.
0: Thanks, Adam, once again, for coming on the podcast. Hopefully you'll be able to come back. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Thanks for tuning in to this Patreon-exclusive segment of Oats for Breakfast.
0: And thanks for being a Patreon supporter of the podcast. It really means a lot to us.
1: (laughs) We'll see you again soon.
0: Bye.